So we are in the process of considering worship. Uh, what is it? Um, do we understand it? How should we practice it? Um, particularly now, how has the church since the time of the New Testament uh, understood the, the doctrine of worship? How have they uh, made uh, it uh, practice in their lives. And so last week, because those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And so um, doomed to repeat its mistakes, rather. And uh, so last week, we really looked at the early church or the patristic period, uh, the, the fathers of uh, the faith, as it were, um, in the New Testament, and some of their, uh, their practices, many of them being very... Uh, Similar to ours today, even uh, some of the bigger differences being the the separating of um, the actual physical removal of people that weren't uh, baptized believers. They would have had to leave uh, the service before the Lord's Supper would have been taken and public prayer. So they were there for some singing and. Uh, preaching, reading of scripture, but when it came time to partake of the Lord's Supper, they had to leave. And so that's a big difference um, to us. And then we saw in the, towards the end of that period in the, um, in the fourth century, the, a lot of changes really began to take place. Some perhaps for the better, a lot for the worst, especially as um, through Constantine and, and others in the, the Roman Empire, as they became Christians or thought Christianity was useful for their own gain, whatever the case may be, Christianity was legalized and eventually mandated. And so a lot of change came into the church that probably wasn't for the best as it was, it really became a religion regulated by the state. Um, And then we see that full-blown in the the Western Church in the Middle Ages, where uh, you have worship of relics and saints, um, what we a summarizing statement we had for the church in the West, and even today, the the Roman Catholic Church is that there are many things done, but very little is explained, and so. Uh, most of the, the laity, the members of the church, don't understand what they're doing or, or why they're doing it. And so um, that leads to a lot of problems. Um, today, then, we want to pick up and uh, talk about, in the Middle Ages, the church in the East, uh, the Greek-speaking church as opposed to the Latin-speaking church, and then um, we'll look at the Reformation, the Puritans, and some modern trends. We may not get through all of that today. Um, and then next week, Mark Hatfield will be here to uh, preach, and he'll give a report for us in Sunday School in China. So we'll take a week off, but then we'll be back to probably finish up this, um, this Amen church history. So, the Eastern Orthodox Church. What we said about the Western Church is that if change and development characterized the Western Church. Does anybody remember what I said characterized the Eastern Church? Stagnation. Um, 
nothing much changed from the beginning to even now. Eastern churches don't have they don't have pews, they don't have a pulpit or any musical instrument of any kind. Um, what they do have is a bunch of two-dimensional, so no statues, but pictures of Christ covering the walls, as well as other biblical characters and saints. The interior of an Orthodox church uh, was and is divided in half by a step and an icon screen, which is covered in icons or images, pictures. And this separates the rest of the church from the table of Holy Communion. And so this screen with these images on it has three doors as well, um, signifying the Trinity. On the left of the three doors is an icon of the Virgin Mary. On the right of the doors is an icon of Christ. The altar is always east of the church and represents heaven. This altar contains a draped square block from which the priest celebrates the Eucharist. Catholics call this the altar, the Orthodox, uh, and the Eastern Church call it the throne of God sometimes. Um, On top of the table is a crucifix, and there are two candles and a copy of the Gospels. Behind the table is a seat for the bishops. In the Orthodox Church, worship contains sermons, Bible readings, and prayers. An Orthodox congregation will stand for the entirety of the service. They receive the bread and wine uh, of communion at the same time uh, together. The bread is dipped in wine and then served on a special spoon. And this dipping of the bread and wine is called intinction. In the East, um, unlike what we said from the West, where there was a time when, um, and even in a lot of ways today, that at some level the, the Lord's Supper is withheld from the, the laity, uh, the Eastern Church never withheld the Lord's Supper from church members. And at the end of the service, anything not consumed is handed out to all worshipers. Uh, so rather, whether the, the priests either destroy or consume the elements, the end they just pass out um, the bread and wine in the Eastern Church. One very interesting difference is that During a worship service in the Eastern Church, participants are free, essentially, I mean, there are some boundaries, but basically they're free to do as they please during the service. Um, One of the, you know, in in our minds, uh, as uh, with the heritage from the West, is that there is a, uh, a specific kind of order that we're all doing the same thing together, right? That in worship... When we're singing, we're singing together. When we're hearing a sermon, we're all we're together. But in the Eastern Church, it's just sort of chaos is the wrong word, but uh, feels like chaos to me. But um, the idea is that there's not a prescribed um, set order all the time of what everyone's doing together. Everyone does what he wants, and so. as I mentioned before, Eastern churches are basically the same today as they were a thousand years ago in the Byzantine Empire. And so, with that, um, any questions? I, I'm not a, certainly not an Eastern Orthodox scholar, but any 
questions? Because that's all I've pretty much got there. Just a, a quick picture of what that looks like. We're certainly more uh, aware of and interested in probably the the practices in the West because that's you know where we come from. What's that? Um, it was was just a matter of location. Um, the what? It was it it was progressive in in the sense of the divide between the two. Um, we mentioned uh, I mentioned last week that um, towards the in the three hundreds there um, in because of Rome uh, Latin was pervading throughout the Roman Empire, and then uh, so in the east where Rome wasn't didn't have its tentacles all over. People were still speaking Greek. And so that was kind of one of the first divisions was that there were in the western um, you know uh, the western region um, in a way they both they both were. Um, one, one changed and one didn't. It was just a location. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so um, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about um, worship needing to be orderly. And so I think that's, that's basically the idea, is that in the West, the idea was, was trying to ensure that there is an orderly, uh, a structured uh, service. Um, exactly how it all plays out, there's some difference. But the, I think it's just trying to safeguard against the idea of the possibility of people just kind of doing whatever with where there's um, because that was some of the issues that was happening in Corinth that Paul warned against in chapter 14 where he says look there's some liberty here but you got there has to be a a structure of God is not a God of chaos but of of order does that make sense about why we might uh, why we prefer more structure than than not well so there is um Really, a lot of darkness, perhaps, is too strong of a word, but um, within the Middle Ages, um, there's not a lot of... There are pockets here and there, certainly, but by the time we get to the 16th century, um, the church, referring specifically in the West, um, has really deviated very, uh, very much from the biblical gospel. And so that is what brings us to the Reformation, with um, Martin Luther and the rest. And so today, if you ask someone, what does the term Reformed mean? Uh, They're probably going to give you some answer that has to do with one's doctrine of salvation. Um, They're going to talk about predestination or election or something like that. And while that is, those are aspects of Reformed theology, uh, the Reformation really was as concerned about uh, reforming worship as it was about uh, other aspects of theology. Um, you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin, their whole thing was not beating people over the head with predestination or, or whatever. That is the way they're typically characterized today. Um, they cared very much about the, the church's doctrine of worship and its practices, 
um, as they did about the church's doctrine of salvation. Both are, were very important. And so the Reformation brought about uh, new forms of, of worship, uh, at least in comparison to what was being practiced in the church at the time. Um, we'll talk about three, essentially. So um, Lutheran worship, coming from Martin Luther, stressed the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so by necessity, the use of Mary and the saints and relics ceased to have any place in the worship of churches that followed in the Lutheran tradition. Additionally, Luther began conducting worship in German and not in Latin. And that sounds perhaps like a no-brainer to us or maybe like something that's not that big of a deal, but truly that was, uh, that was a massive change. We talked about that last week. Imagine coming in here and not being able to understand a word that I was saying. But you were expected to be here and to do what I told you. But you had no idea why I was telling you to do it or really what uh, anything that was going on. And so when, Germ- when Luther in Germany began conducting the services in German, it was a game changer. And so um, another thing that was one of the most basic distinctions and changes in the Reformation uh, from the Catholic Church was that worship was um, an act of the entire congregation. It was not something that they came back to watch. They came to sit back and watch. Worship was no longer a spectator sport, as we had mentioned before. It became an act of the congregation. Um, this really comes theologically from the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Um, an example of, of that idea is in 1 Peter 2.9. Peter writes, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And this is a fulfillment of God's promise to the Israelites in Exodus um, 19. He says that He will make them a kingdom of priests. And then in Revelation, we really see the ultimate fulfillment of that, that we are kingdom of priests unto our God. And so the idea of the priesthood of all believers is that we do not come to God through a mortal man now on earth as a priest, as our mediator, we have our high priest, Jesus Christ, and we've talked a lot about this uh, in this class, is that He now is our mediator and we come um, as a priest, all having access to God through Jesus, not needing the mediation of another human man. There is one mediator. And so... Uh, this, is, this undergirds the practices of Lutheran churches, and it, means, it meant that worship was a corporate and congregational act, and it wasn't a performance by professional worshipers watched by a passive people. Um, this congregational uh, aspect of worship inspired corporate singing of psalms and hymns. Um, that was another thing in the Catholic Church. It was mostly you would, you would hear things sung. The congregation did a little singing itself. But in Lutheran churches, Luther was, was very big on music. That was 
kind of uh, one of his things. He wrote many hymns. Um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, probably being one of the, the most famous of his hymns. Um, and additionally, the Lord's Supper was, was brought back into a weekly uh, element of the worship services uh, as the, entire, the participation of the entire congregation was stressed. Um, all that to say, though, Luther was, compared to the other Reformers, pretty conservative in keeping Catholic traditional liturgy and practices where he could. His uh, mode of, of operation, his method, was essentially to say that unless Scripture demands that this element in the Catholic Church be changed, then he would try to keep it. Um, and so the, uh, a typical service under Luther would have looked something like this. They would begin with um, singing a hymn or one of the psalms. Then um, they would um, recite, chant, pray, sing um, Kyrie eleison, which is Greek for Lord, uh, have mercy. And then there would be a set prayer, one that was already written down that would be prayed. There would be a scripture reading um, read from uh, one of the set passages for the day, Acts to Revelation. Another, a hymn would be sung by the choir. There's another scripture reading from the Gospels. The Apostles' Creed was sung by the entire congregation. Then there was a sermon. The Lord's Prayer would be offered with a, more of a paraphrase. Um, then there would be an exhortation leading into communion. Then there was the words of institution. Um, the bread and wine would be consecrated while the hymn was sung. They would... Uh, distribute the cup and bread um, while another hymn is sung. There would be a set prayer and then they would offer the benediction uh, from number 6, 24 through 26, the Aaronic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this was the basic practice within uh, Luther's uh, tradition. And we, all, and we realize that um, as time has gone on, there are a lot of changes that have happened, so um, Lutheran churches today are not necessarily going to look like uh, what Lutheran churches would have in the Reformation. Some could, some probably don't. Uh, And so basically, if you're thinking, well, what are the main differences then between Luther's service and the, um, the Catholic tradition? First, we mentioned that it was in German, not in Latin. Um, His new communion liturgy replaced the Catholic Mass. And then third, Luther exalted preaching to the central position in worship rather than the Mass. And Luther's hymns also played a very significant role in nurturing and nourishing Lutheran belief, belief and spirituality. So, uh, other, any questions about Luther um, and Lutheran worship, particularly as it was in the Reformation and his aims or comments? Yeah. Um, uh, so in the uh, the, the pr- priest, the idea of the priest is uh, a carryover from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. 
Um, Israel had priests, and through uh, various physical acts that were required uh, with uh, spiritual uh, motives, right, spiritual motives, people were required to make sacrifices and do things like that in the Old, old Covenant. And through this proper avenue, um, they were assured of this temporary part in this rolling over of their sins, looking forward ultimately to the coming of Christ. The problem with the idea of priests today is that um, where they get it from other than that kind of idea that they don't, that they underemphasize the role of Jesus as our mediator, um, they, they stand and offer themselves as mediators between God and man. Um, Right. And, and the, one of the most fundamental distinctions between Protestantism and the Roman Catholic Church um, is the idea of, of sola scriptura, the idea that scripture alone is our, our rule of faith and our guide, our ultimate authority. And so while there are plenty of things that the Roman Catholic Church may, ha- they may reference the Bible for, Ultimately, the Bible is, on, in their minds, they treat it as on the same plane uh, with tradition. And so at any time during the development of the Roman Catholic Church, um, at these, as these practices began to become prevalent in the church, whether it be because someone misunderstood something in the Bible or the Pope or priest just said, this is how it is, that's... Yeah, yeah, so Roman Catholicism would would you do they do require faith, but salvation is dependent upon faith from grace and works. So they're not it's not a solely works based thing, but it's faith plus works, which is not what the Bible teaches. Paul says that we are saved by faith apart from works of the law. But we do know as Protestants we say that if you have faith, that will produce good works in you. But what is it that is the basis on which I am accepted before God? It is the work of Christ alone appropriated to me through faith. Um, and so, yeah, and not every single Roman Catholic that could call himself or herself one necessarily believes that. Uh, but the Roman Catholicism as a system, that's what they teach, is that it's faith plus works. Anything about that or questions Lutherism? So, all right. Uh, Zwinglian worship then. So, Ulrich Zwingli or Zwingli. Um, it's a Z-W-I-N-G-L-I. Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli from Zurich. Um, his outlook on worship brought about a much more obvious break with Catholic tradition than Luther's had. Luther permitted practices for Roman Catholicism to remain so long as they were not forbidden by Scripture. We said that before. Zwingli, however, stressed that nothing should be done in worship unless it was positively commanded by Scripture, particularly the New Testament. 
operating with this foundational principle, Ulrich removed all religious pictures, statues, crucifixes, candles, altars, and relics from the churches which were following his lead. Additionally, he saw to the removal of the organ, choir, priestly robes, and religious processions. None of these things, Zwingli argued, were authorized by the New Testament. Um, Like Luther, he, uh, he, uh, he advocated for the exclusive use of the native language. So, Uh, For him, it was a Swiss dialect of German, not Latin. And he introduced a version of the Lord's Supper where the lady received the bread and wine while sitting in pews, uh, a common practice among Protestants today, um, first pioneered by Zwingli. Um, He did use some liturgical forms of worship with set prayers and creeds, But he really did introduce a genuinely Protestant form of these things, not merely translating the old Catholic liturgy into German. Singing, however, was not part of Zwingli's tradition. Um, One uh, author says this. He says, even though Zwingli was probably the best musician among among the major reformers, he had a radically different position from that of Luther Zwingli believed that worship was too uh, that music was too powerful and too emotional to be used in Christian worship. He argued that music would too easily move people away from focusing on the word and its meaning for them. As a result, in Zurich, uh, singing was eliminated from worship in Zwingli's day. No musical instruments, no choirs, and no congregational singing were permitted. In the place of singing. Zwingli had the congregation recite scriptural passages antiphonally, which is sort of like a, kind of like a call and response. So half the congregation would read one line, the other half would read the other, and they would go back and forth. That. Right, just like that. No, yeah. <laughs> Definitely, no, he's not a charismatic at all. Um, Worship in the Zwinglian tradition was basically a preaching service, right? And so there was Bible readings, prayers, and a sermon. Um, He did not regard the Lord's Supper as integral to Sunday's worship, as opposed to the other Reformers. Um, He was content celebrating the Lord's Supper four times a year. Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, and then there was a local Zurich festival on September 11th. Uh, This was probably because of his view of what actually took place during the Lord's Supper and what did not take place during the Lord's Supper. If you know anything about the one of the bigger bigger debates in the Reformation was on the issue of the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic Church had taught the doctrine of transubstantiation. That upon the, the, the consecrating and blessing of the elements, that uh, Christ's physical body and blood actually um, were, tra- the, the elements were transformed into Christ's physical body and blood. Really, accidentally, if you ate them, it still tasted like bread and wine. It looked like bread and wine, but spiritually, they were truly the but the actual physical, so how they, I, it's confusing, right? 
they, you know, physically they're there, but spiritually, but it's really physically his actual body that's supposed to be in heaven, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God now, is divided and re-sacrificed over and over again. Um, so that was transubstantiation. Luther taught a version of consubstantiation that the body and blood of Christ are with the elements. They're sort of, he would basically, it was like, he would use every preposition that was possible other than, like, that was, they were in the, they were in, they were above the elements, under the elements, with the elements, around the elements, but they weren't actually the elements themselves. But it it was hard to distinguish what the difference was. Um, We'll look at, we'll talk about what Calvin said in a second, but Zwingli basically said that Christ was present only in his divine nature. Right? That as Christ is God, that God is omnipresent, there was no special presence of the Lord in any way, shape, or form during the Lord's Supper. It was a memorial, an act of commemoration, and nothing else. Um, I remember in college trying to work through this issue, and um, what, an author that I read, he said, it's, it's odd that the way we talk about the Lord's Supper sometimes is that the only place, like, we know for sure the one place where Jesus isn't is at the Lord's Supper. And uh, he was being facetious, but um, I think he made a good point. So, uh, But that was Vingley. So Vingley did not see the Lord's Supper really as a means of grace in any way, where it was, it was an act of obedience, commemorating, remembering the Lord's Zwingli, uh, he he was, per, uh, orth, you know, he was good on the Trinity that there was one being, three persons: Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all co-eternal, co-divine. Uh, no no issues there. Um, he also did not baptize babies, uh, distinct from the other reformers, um, I, because if you if you think about the way he he argued that unless the New Testament explicitly uh, commands something, then he wouldn't do it. And so since the New Testament nowhere explicitly says baptize babies, infants, uh, he wouldn't do it. I don't think his rejection was probably based on this uh, really well-reasoned argument against this sort of covenantal approach of the Old Testament translated the New. It was just the New Testament doesn't sanction it so explicitly, so we're not going to do it. His order of worship looked something like this. There was a set prayer. There was a scripture reading from the New Testament letters. Um, Gloria in Excelsis was recited antiphonally by the congregation. There's a scripture reading from the Gospels. The Apostles' Creed was recited antiphonally by the congregation. Um, there was an exhortation, so sermon and then leading into Holy Communion. There was the Lord's Prayer recited by the congregation. There was a set prayer that he would offer. Uh, there were the words of institution for the Lord's Supper. There was a consecration and distribution. So when they had it, this is what they would do. Consecrate and distribute the elements. A psalm was read intentionally by the congregation. He would pray again and then offer a benediction. Uh, questions on... Zwingli, one of the other reformers. I know this is 
a lot. Um, but it's helpful to kind of see where, how some of these things developed. So Zwingli, so now third, uh, lastly for the Reformation then, we have Calvin and um, I think it's pronounced Butzer, uh, B-U-C-E-R. Um, we'll focus mo- most on Calvin though, so if I'm horribly mispronouncing the other guy's name, Martin Butzer, he'll forgive me. Because um, we won't say it a whole lot. So he introduced a distinctly uh, reformed perspective on worship, but it was really Calvin uh, and Butzer that gave it its decisive shape. Right. So in some ways, you see, uh, you know, Luther uh, really begins all of this, and then there's, you know, constant, you know, the. Semper reformanda, the Latin phrase, always reforming, right? That there's always, always coming back to Scripture to make sure that what we're doing is in line with what the Bible teaches. And so um, Calvin agreed with Vingley that in order for a practice to be received into the church's worship, it ought to be, must be authorized by Scripture. But Calvin also sought... Um, much more than Zwingli, to understand how the church, particularly the early church, had understood Scripture's teaching on the subject as well. So this is not the Roman Catholic's doctrine of equal plane where Scripture and tradition are the same. It was, rather, that sola scriptura, that Scripture alone uh, dictates what the church is to do, but... Um, we would be fools, he says, not to ask the question, what has the church said about such an issue? And so there was a profound dialogue uh, with Calvin and the patristic period um, and its worship practices. But for him, as I said, Scripture was the ultimate authority on the subject. For example, where uh, an era where Calvin differed with Zwingli in the subject uh, was in the area of singing. He positively committed. He was positively committed to congregational singing rather than merely reciting scripture, as the worshippers of Zurich did. In 1539, he published a songbook with 17 psalms, uh, the Nunc Dimittis. Um, now, send send us away. Um, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, all of this was set to music in agreement with Zwingli. So that's where he differed with Zwingli, where he agrees with Zwingli. Contra Luther, Calvin's music was not accompanied by other instruments besides the human voice. So Luther was organ, just, I mean, for them that was, that was huge. Luther, uh, Zwingli and Calvin didn't have instruments, but whereas Zwingli didn't have singing at all, Calvin would have. So his services looked something like this. There was a scripture reading, uh, an opening set prayer they would, uh, where there was a confession of sin. There were scriptural words of pardon based on this confession of sin, words of absolution. The Ten Commandments uh, were sung um, with Curie Laison after each commandment, Lord, have mercy. There was a prayer for illumination, scripture reading, a sermon. There was an offering, set prayers of intercession, uh, 
the Apostles' Creed or a psalm was sung, and then there was the Aaronic blessing from Numbers 6. Um, contrary to Calvin's wishes, uh, the magistrates in Strasbourg only allow them to celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month. So he wanted it every week, but the, the government of Strasbourg, and he, neither when he, w- he was in Strasbourg and in Geneva, pastor in both those places, neither uh, place he was able to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper more than once a month. Uh, I think it had to do with, um, so Calvin's uh, teaching on the Lord's Supper was essentially that Christ is spiritually present. So the Holy Spirit is uh, present in the Lord's Supper, um, nourishing and strengthening believers. And so as we receive the Lord's Supper physically, we are to be receiving it spiritually. So by faith, we are being strengthened and nourished by the Lord. And so uh, as this means of grace, as this uh, right of the church, the, the magistrates in the various cities where he were in wanting to limit the power of the church um, with excommunication and such, because if the church is able to have... Um, so if the Lord suffers every week and they're excommunicating people, then that's a much bigger deal than if it only happens every now and then. And so that seems to be one reason why uh, Calvin was only permitted to have it once a month. So he's not physically present in the bread and wine, as Luther said, basically, nor is his divine nature alone present, as Vingley said, but the power of the Spirit nourishing and strengthening believers as they receive the bread and wine physically, nourishes their souls with the glorified human life of the ascended Christ. Um, they would add in the Lord's Supper when they were able to do it after the Apostles' Creed. They would, he, there would be a prayer of consecration. They would say the Lord's Prayer, words of institution of the Supper, uh, he would exhort the congregation concerning the supper. They would partake of communion while a psalm was sung. They would a set prayer. The new dimitis was sung. And then there was uh, the, the Aaronic blessing. Close them out. Okay. So Calvin, nutshell, the, the reformers in a nutshell. Um, when Calvin was in Geneva, he had a slightly... Uh, trimmed down version of the one in Strasbourg. He kept what he could, but basically the scriptural words of pardon, the declaration of absolution by the minister of the Lord's Prayer, the singing of the Ten Commandments and the New Dimities and the offering were uh, removed when they were in Strasbourg. Okay. So that was... Yes? Uh, French. He's, he was... He's French, Geneva. Um, yeah, and he would have he would have uh, thought the 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 um, the vulgar language, the common language spoken by the people, would have been important to use. Um, but he would have had uh, some of the songs, you know, the Nunc Dimittis, for example, would have been Latin. So some things they used would have been Latin, but by and large, he was. He's in French, so. All right, it looks like then what we will have to do is pick up with the uh, 
the Puritans leading into modern worship practices in two weeks. Um, the uh, Reformation took the whole time, so, but that's that's good. Um, no, um, within Protestantism, uh, at some level, people can generally trace their. Uh, yeah. So. Right, and what what begins to happen is as the Reformation, so the church, uh, you know, was in the New Testament and the first several centuries, the church is fairly diverse. Um, it becomes much more monolithic in the Middle Ages, in the West at least, with the, the Roman Catholic Church. You come to the Reformation and then uh, there's this... Um, attempt to reform the church that does not go well and so people have to break. So Luther never intended, he was not, you know, we call it a a reformation and not a revolt because his intention was not to start something brand new. For most of his reforming career, he still honored the Pope and all sorts of things. He wanted to, uh, to, the, the 95 theses that he nails on the door of the church in Wittenberg was not this Let's everyone come together with our lanterns and pitchforks and take the uh, the bishops and priests out. It was uh, he was calling for debate, but so things don't go well, and then it's this is further divide. And so as we get further and further away from the Reformation, there's more and more things cropping up. Where at some level you can technically trace things back to the reformers. That there are a lot of things that come about that kind of don't have much. So we'll look more on that later, but. Um, does that answer your question at all? Yes. Hebrew and Greek, he would have used. Yeah, that was and and we didn't even I didn't we didn't get to mention that. But in the Reformation, one of the biggest uh, sort of the, the the battle cries of the Reformation was getting back to using the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, because the church had used Latin when Jerome, I think, in the four hundreds had. Uh, written the Latin Vulgate, uh, that, that became the standard Bible for the church. Um, even when languages changed, it didn't. Uh, and so, uh, but it was one, you know, it was one man doing his, his own translation and that wasn't perfect. Um, so, uh, Calvin, Luther, Luther, you know, they, they really stressed using the Hebrew and the Greek to translate directly into the languages rather than translating from the Latin or any other language. It wasn't this progression of we have Hebrew to Greek to Latin to German and then French and then we get Spanish and now English or whatever that our Bibles today, their Bibles Sure. Yeah, penance rather than repentance. Different different things. Good. Okay. Um, for time, uh, we'll pray. If you have other questions, I'd love to, to talk about them and we'll pick this up in two weeks. Father, thanks for your word and for your day. I pray, God, that you would meet with us, draw near to us, and help us, God, that as we continue to, to look at the past and we look at your word, to, to, to learn from the mistakes of others, to benefit from the things that they did right, 
as well as the things they did wrong, and ultimately that your word would be our, our true guide, our ultimate authority. So uh, bless us now, uh, meet your people and who seek to worship you in spirit and truth. Give Nick the great unction of the spirit to preach your gospel boldly with zeal and love and humility. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.